0: We're looking at the book of Judges, chapter 1, as we begin our new sermon series through this book today. If you would join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we come to you eager to hear from You. We come to You needy, weak, helpless. We know that You are our faithful, loving Father. We ask that You would feed us through Your Word. We ask that You would give us ears to hear, that You would open the eyes of our hearts to see your glorious promises that are fulfilled in Christ, that we would behold your Son, Jesus. And by the power of your Spirit, we would leave from here changed to be more like Him. Give me strength, O God, as I proclaim your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, our Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I saw an article in Time magazine recently, and the article's title was How Marvel Lost Its Way. And this article chronicles the rise and fall of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, even if you don't like Marvel or you don't like movies at all, you've got to acknowledge this was kind of a movie-making and cultural phenomenon for a while there. Starting in 2008 with the first movie, Iron Man, uh, kind of an unprecedented uh, concept in movie-making of all these different movies that were all connected, sharing characters and storylines, and they would all come together. And for a while, it was one blockbuster after another, They absolutely conquered uh, the entire box office. Every movie seemed like a major victory for Marvel, and they seemed completely unstoppable. And then you had this climactic moment in 2019 with the movie Avengers Endgame, which became very quickly the highest grossing movie of all time. Marvel had cracked the formula to success. And that movie kind of brought everything together in this climactic, epic battle. There was the death of a lead character. And after that, everything just kind of fell apart. Even those who were kind of dedicated, devoted MCU fans don't even care anymore. And so this article, this writer, who was an MCU fan herself, traces what went wrong, what happened. She says, after Avengers Endgame, and the death of that central hero, there just hasn't been a strong enough character to drive the story forward. In fact, the whole series has lapsed into confusion now. There are all of these different kind of threads, you don't see how it fits together, complete fragmentation and confusion, Marvel has lost its way. Well, today, we are entering into Israel's non-cinematic universe after the death of their key leader, Joshua. Israel has just lost their Iron Man and we're going to see the next phase of this nation's life together. Judges shows us how things go for Israel after the death of Joshua. In fact, Judges shows us how Israel lost its way. And by doing so, Scripture will guard us from losing our way, will remind us to keep our eyes fixed on the one who can keep us from going astray. So we're entering a new book, a new series here, and uh, before we get into the text, I want to give you uh, three matters of introduction, three matters of introduction that will help you read this book. It's a difficult book, it's not easy, and so I want to give you three matters of introduction, namely, Structure, content, and principles for how we should read. First, structure. By way of structure, I just want to show you how this book is outlined. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, It's a sandwich. In fact, it's a multi-layered sandwich. The book of Judges has two introductions, and it has two conclusions. And the introductions and the conclusions correspond to each other. So you can imagine two slices of bread and then two slices of cheese. One on the bottom slice and one right there with the top slice. All right. So the first introduction that we're going to look at today is from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 5. The second introduction we'll look at next week is from chapter 2 verse 6 to chapter 3 verse 6. And then the two conclusions, chapters 17 and 18 is conclusion number 1. Chapters 19 through 21 is conclusion number 2. All right? And again, I said they correspond. So if the first introduction that we'll see today talks all about war and tribes, right? Tribes at war. And it begins with this question who will go up for us? And then that corresponds to the bottom slice of bread, the last conclusion of the book, which also focuses on tribes at war, but among themselves, and also has the question who will go up for us? And then you have these two slices of cheese, the second introduction and the first conclusion which correspond to each other, right? Chapter 2, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 6, and then chapters 17 and 18, and both of those focus on idolatry, idolatry, the idolatry of the people of Israel. So two introductions, two conclusions, and then in between you have 12 different judges they're called. What does that mean? I'll explain. Six of them are major judges. Six of them are minor judges, which means you, they get hardly a verse. And even those are arranged in cycles. All right, So each of those judges, the major judges, is introduced with the same phrase. Okay, The beginning of that judge is, goes with this phrase, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So you have that with the first major judge, Othniel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you come to the next guy. It says, again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The next guy, again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So three... And then, again, when you pick up with Gideon, it starts, the people of Israel did what was evil in sight of the Lord, and again, and again, and that's how they're introduced. So, very simple structure. You have two introductions, two conclusions, all of these judges in between, six major, six minor, and the major ones are introduced with the same phrase. That's the structure of the book. So, if you're reading it, you'll see these phrases, and you can pick it up. Hopefully, you took some notes, or you can listen to the sermon again later. It's a sandwich, two slices of bread, two slices of cheese, and then six big patties with condiments in between. Okay, a big fat sandwich. I also want you to know it's not chronological, okay? Sometimes you can read this and think of one judge coming after another and then you begin to add up the years and you say, wait a minute, this is a long, long time. Well, it's not chronological. No, the arrangement of the book is geographical and theological. These judges were not any time ruling over the whole nation. No, they were kind of tribal leaders. They're functioning, some of them at the same time in different parts of the country. So that's the arrangement if you get confused there. So first, structure. Second, content. Content. What is this book about? First of all, why is it even called Judges? When we hear the word judge, you think of somebody in a black robe who sits in a courtroom and he has a gavel and he pronounces judgment. That's not what the word Judges here means. The book would be more appropriately called saviors saviors right if, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 16 it says the Lord raised up judges who saved them who delivered them and again verse 18 of chapter 2 whenever the Lord raised up judges for them the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge right so these guys are deliverers or saviors raised up by God. Now, with the Israel non-cinematic universe, uh, I want to issue some disclaimers, parental warnings. Uh, One pastor says, and I agree, that most of the content of this book is rated PG-13. And whatever is not rated PG-13 is rated R. This is a difficult and dark book. The book of Judges is filled with violence and wickedness, with darkness and death. It's graphic in its violent depictions at times. It's gory. There is more on-screen blood than in any of the books of the Old Testament. Some of its stories are spicy, sordid, even shocking. And you'll often see confusion and chaos and so you hear all of that and you're asking Pastor Aubrey why on earth are you preaching judges then you know I was uh, walking into the church building with all of the books I was using to study for the series and I met another brother pastor and he, he said oh what do you and he saw all these books on judges and he just started laughing and just shook his head <laughs> and I said yeah <laughs> it's going to be tough why are we preaching judges well, first of all, I want to say the Bible is not Talabat. We, we don't pick and choose what we like. You know, I'll pick my favorite restaurant, then i pick my favorite thing that I'm going to eat, and even within there, I have different choices. I'm going to pick what I like, and then leave out what I don't like. No, we take all of Scripture as the whole counsel of God, believing that all of it is profitable for us. Judges, in all of its darkness in all of its difficulty, shows us the depths of sin. The depths of our sin. And in doing so, it also reveals to us our desperate need of God's grace and of His provision of a Savior. It shows us our desperate need of a savior, which God so graciously provides his people. You see, by getting familiar with the deep darkness of sin, we can more greatly appreciate the radiant brightness of Christ. So that's my note about content. We saw structure, content. Third introductory matter is principles for interpretation. Principles for interpretation. And this is uh, kind of corresponds to what I just said. First, we read the book of Judges, and this applies; these principles apply to most, almost anything in the Old Testament that we read. As we're reading the book of Judges, we're looking at examples. Examples. There's an exemplary kind of model given for us. In most cases, not to follow. So think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7. He says, he's speaking of the wilderness generation of Israel there. But you can extend that to the book of Judges and beyond to all of the Old Testament. He says, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Right? That we might not desire evil as they did. Negative examples. That's our first principle. The second principle is we read this book for its Christ-centered hope. Again, every book of the Old Testament leads us to Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Judges falls into the section of scripture called the former prophets. That's how the Jews considered it at Jesus' time. And he says, that's about me. Everything that's written in those books is about me and I have fulfilled it. Romans chapter 15, Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So this book gives us Christ-centered hope. That's how we should read it, looking for Christ-centered hope in its pages. You see, friends, there's a lot of similarity between us as the people of God And the people of Israel that we meet in the book of Judges. Much like Israel, we have experienced the beginning of God's saving promises in our lives. And we're waiting for their complete consummation and fulfillment. Just like Israel, we have experienced a great deliverance from bondage. They were delivered from bondage to slavery in Egypt. We have been delivered through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ from bondage to slavery, sin, and death. Just like they were coming into their inheritance and were going to find rest in the inheritance that God had promised them, we stand on the cusp of an eternal heavenly inheritance and rest that God has promised us in Christ. And by looking at how things went for Israel in the book of Judges, we have an example of how sin can destroy us. And by looking at the book of Judges, at how God raised up saviors for His people, we see the great hope that we have in our perfect Savior who delivers us, God's King who saves us. So those are the introductory matters. That's how we read the book of Judges. And as we enter today into the first introduction of this book, from chapter 1 and verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 5, we see that the book prompts the question, what happens next? Joshua, Israel's iron man, has died. What happens next? How will things go for the people of Israel? How do they enter into the fulfillment of God's promises? That's a good question for us. What happens next? How will things go for us? How do we enter into the fulfillment of God's promises? And as we look at our text today, dear friends, I pray that the answer to that question will sober us and lead us to wholehearted devotion to Christ and His commands. We're going to go through this first introductory section in three movements, as we see what happens next for Israel, three movements. And in that journey, we'll make four stops along the way at four different towns with them, where the author slows things down and brings us to focus on particular aspects of the story. So movement one, a good beginning. Movement one, a good beginning. This is in verses 1 to 18, and verse 1 picks it up. After the death of Joshua. After the death of Joshua. Now, this is very interesting. If you go back to the previous book of the Bible, which is the book of Joshua, that book begins the same way. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 1 says after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. This is sort of a boundary event in Scripture. This book is telling you we're moving on in the story of God's plan, and the death of God's servants always sort of functions as boundary events in the Bible, showing us the unfolding of God's plan. Each death represents a new chapter A turning point in the story, showing us that no human being can ultimately bring the complete fulfillment of God's promises. Now each of these could only play their part in God's unfolding plan, moving the story forward until the death of the one who would defeat death. So this book picks up. It's a turning point, a boundary event. And we're now moving to this new phase after the death of Joshua. And the people start well enough. Look at verse 1. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. The people of Israel have learned from Moses and from Joshua who they are to go to for leadership and direction. They go to the Lord Himself, their Creator, their Master, their Lord. They inquired of the Lord. They seek God for direction. How did they do that? In all likelihood, what we've seen in the earlier books, the priests used these stones called the Urim and the Tumim, and that's how they went into God's presence, and they sought from God an answer for particular things, and then by some use of lots with those stones, they believed that God indicated His answer. So they inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? You know, it's interesting as you go further and further in the book of Judges towards the end, you'll see the people approach God less and less and less. Here they're starting well. They inquire of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Very quick, the context here. The people of Israel were redeemed by God, brought out of slavery in Egypt, and God had promised to bring them into the promised land, a land that he had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. Uh, Moses led them through this season of 40 years in the wilderness. And then under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' successor, which we meet in the previous book of the Bible, they had come into the land. Joshua had led the people to break the backbone of Canaanite resistance already. They had overtaken major fortified cities like Jericho and ai miraculously with strange military strategies that made sure that they knew that God was the one who was fighting their battles for them and now they've been appointed each of them with their inheritance and they're supposed to go and take it over and fulfill this task of driving out the Canaanites and until now you've got to see the Lord had led his people out of Egypt through Moses who was from the tribe of Levi then into the land through Joshua who was from the tribe of Ephraim. But now the Lord says, verse 2, The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And this is very significant, because God had promised that Judah would be the royal tribe. From the tribe of Judah would come God's king. Kingship belongs to the tribe of Judah. And on all of this while God has been leading his people through other servants from different tribes. But as soon as they hear this, they're thinking, wow, okay, the time has come. God's plan is moving forward. God's promise is going to be fulfilled. Because you go back to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It raises expectations both among the original readers and our readers today, that God is going to bring his king over his people. Well, we come to the end of Judges and you see they have no king. What does Judah do? He's speaking to the tribe there. Judah shall go up. Verse 3, Judah, these Judahites, they approach their brothers, Simeonites. Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And again, this is a good beginning. There's unity between the tribes. The Judahites and the Simeonites are functioning as brothers. They, they recognize that God loves the unity of his people. There's all of this tribal unity that we see in the earlier chapters of Judges. And isn't that an important word for us, brothers and sisters, in the church? To maintain unity to depend on one another, to seek help from one another when we need it, to serve and care for one another. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. We need one another. Well, as you keep reading onward again in the book of Judges, you'll see the unity of God's people get fragmented. You'll see them again and again begin to assume the worst, to treat each other poorly, to slay their brothers and sister Israelites. And you ask the question, by the end, there's a complete civil war. You ask the question, what happened? So here, it's a good beginning. And then the author slows us down from verses 4 and following at the first of four places in our journey. Right? All of these places begin with B, interestingly, I'll show you. The first place is Bezek, Bezek, verse 4. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek, they found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So they go capture this town, Bezek. Again, a great, successful military victory. They killed 10,000 men a ragtag army of Judahites, kills 10,000 men, obviously the Lord is with them, giving them strength, this guy tries to flee, they, they find him and catch him, he's the lord or master of that city, Adoni Bezek means lord of Bezek, and then they inflict upon him this punishment, which he's inflicted upon 70 other guys before him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and you think, what kind of punishment is that? Just as an experiment, try tying your shoelaces without your thumbs. Okay? You can try that after the service. You will see that you are not able to do that. And I guarantee if you did not have toes, you probably wouldn't be able to run. Okay? So this is a punishment that completely removes his capacity to lead his people in war. And he sees it as kind of a poetic justice. It's an irony here that this Canaanite pagan man recognizes that God brings upon him a kind of justice that he's done this to 70 other kings he's brutalized them this way now he what goes around comes around and he gets a taste of his own medicine they keep going after the stop at bezek verses 8 to 10 more victories The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev, in the lowland, and Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiryat Arba, and they defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, who were probably some big, mighty warriors whose names were known. They keep winning; looks like they're successful. Verses 11 to 15, the action slows down again. And we come to another stop at the next place in our journey. So first place was Bezek. This is another stop where the author slows down. This place is called Debir or Kiryat Sefer. You see that in verse 11? From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiryat Sefer. And, and, and you're wondering, you said all the places begin with B. Well, kind of. Kiryat Sefer means the city of books. All right? So, I mean, if you want to contextualize that, you could call it book town or give it a nice al-bukhra, right? So they they stop at al-bukhra. And Caleb says, He who attacks Kiryat Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So again, this is a good beginning. This is intended to show us a beautiful picture. First of all, you have Caleb, who was of the same generation as Joshua, who was seen as a righteous man and leader in that generation, a man of faith. And then you have Him saying, whoever captures this city, I'm going to give him my daughter in marriage. And then this hero emerges named Othniel. Uh, You'll see him later in chapter 3. He is Israel's first judge, first deliverer. And he's kind of a great hero. He's a heroic guy. He says, I'm going to do it. And then he goes and does it. And then you have this enterprising and really creative woman, Aksa. She's thinking about her household, she receives from her father this blessing of land, and then she says, give me upper springs, lower springs, and he gives her that. This is kind of an Edenic scene, it's paradisical. They receive land, you have a conquering hero, Uh, there's water sources, right? It's it's kind of going to flourish. A victorious hero, a, a beautiful maiden, a harmonious family, all seems well. And Caleb, her father, Aksa's father, treats her with such grace and dignity, It's a beautiful picture of how harmonious families function. Well, you come to the end of the book of Judges, and you see family structures completely break down. You see absolutely degrading and dehumanizing treatment of women. As you keep going through Judges, you'll see that the women are treated worse and worse. There's another judge who shows up who treats his daughter very poorly. And again, the author wants you to ask the question, What happened? Verses 16 to 18. Things keep going with this good beginning. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father in law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Horma. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory, and things are going great. All these successes. The whole story seems to start so well after the death of Joshua. They inquire of the Lord. They seek God's counsel. There's all this focus on Judah, the leader tribe, the tribe destined for royalty, The Lord commanded that Judah should go up, saying, I've given the land into his hand. There's unity between the tribes, Judah and Simeon. There's a victorious hero, a wise woman, a harmonious family. There's a number of victories. And then verse 19 tells you why, right at the beginning of verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah. It's because God is with them. And they're trusting Him. And He's going with them. His presence goes with them. The Lord was with Judah, and He took possession of the hill country. This is a fantastic beginning. But right in the middle of verse 19, there's a sudden plot twist, a sudden turn. And that leads us into movement two. Movement one was a good beginning. Movement two, a repeated compromise. We see repeated compromises. Verse 19, Judah took possession of the hill country, but, and that's not a good but, But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. All of a sudden, this swift-moving story comes to a screeching halt In the middle of verse 19, Judah failed to finish the job. And why it tells us there is because they had chariots of iron. And you think, really? Chariots of iron? You're afraid of chariots of iron? That's your excuse? Think about it. This is the people of Israel. They came out from Egypt, the mightiest superpower in the ancient world. They walked through the Red Sea watching walls of water on both sides and they saw that Red Sea swallow up Pharaoh and his entire army. They came to Jericho, the most fortified city in the ancient world and God said, walk around it each day one time and then the seventh day seven times and blow your trumpets. That was their military strategy. And they conquered that city. But here they're scared of chariots of iron. They can't do it because of chariots of iron. What a flimsy excuse. And Caleb is a man of faith. He's successful. But, verse 21 but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And that's also telling, isn't it? Earlier they told us that the Judahites captured Jerusalem, but they didn't occupy it completely, they gave up ground already. Well, things seemed like they started so well, and things were going well, but what's happened here? They've compromised. They haven't finished what God told them to do, and we'll see this compromise repeated again and again and again in subsequent verses. But first, we must make a stop at our third town. We'll see another major compromise here. We saw Bezek, we saw booktown or al-bukhra and now we come to bethel in verses 22 to 26 the house of joseph also went up against bethel and the lord was with them notice what they do the house of joseph scouted out bethel now the name of the city was formerly luz and the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you and he showed them the way into the city And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Now maybe that story sounds kind of familiar to you if you know your Bible well. It actually very much resembles a story that we read in the book of Joshua, the previous book. In Joshua chapter 2, as the people came against the city of Jericho. And there also, they sent spies to scout out the city. And these spies come to an inhabitant of the city. who was a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab gives them information, and then she helps them. Here they come upon this guy from the city. They ask for a, kind of an entrance into the city, it's probably a secret way. And they promise him, we'll deal kindly with you, and he does. But you see, there's some major differences between this story and the story that we see in Joshua 2 with Rahab. Rahab acknowledged the God of Israel as the one true God. Yahweh is her God. She switched sides in the middle of the war. She says, Your God is God. And she deals with the spies with covenant faithfulness. The word, the phrase there, deal kindly, is the Hebrew word for covenant loyalty and faithfulness. Rahab, the the same word is used of Rahab's actions towards the spies in Joshua 2. She dealt with them kindly. She showed them covenant faithfulness because she trusts in the same God. Here in Bethel, these Israelites show covenant faithfulness. They deal kindly with this man, but it's not reciprocated. He doesn't worship their God. He's, he's not loyal to the God of Israel or to the people of Israel. They're just making a compromise and an arrangement of pure convenience. And they take over the city of Luz, but guess what? The city of Luz lives on. Because this very man and his family whom they spare goes off and builds that same city again. Different place, same name, same culture, same evils. Compromise. Compromise. The compromise continues and repeats over and over again from verses 27 to 36. As I read these verses, notice again and again how many times the phrase, did not drive out, appears. In fact, you can read that phrase with me as we go through the verses, did not drive out. Verse 27 and following. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akho or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth anat so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land nevertheless the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Ijalon, and in Sha'albim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Sela, and upward. Did you notice how many times the author drives this home? Altogether, in chapter 1, the phrase, did not drive out, appears nine times, seven times in the section that we just read. They did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And and did you notice, as I read that section, I mean, there were a number of tongue twisters there and mind-boggling names. And it's a, it's it's really God's providence that I manage in grace that I managed to get through all of them. But did you notice how things shift? Notice initially it says that they lived among the Can- the Canaanites lived among them, right? Verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gaza. so the Canaanites lived among them. Verse 30. The Canaanites lived among them. But then in verse 31 and following, it shifts. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants, verse 32. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants, so they lived among the Canaanites. Do you see the progression? It goes from the Canaanites being allowed to live among them to now they living among the Canaanites and eventually in verses 34 and onwards it's total defeat the conquest has gone in reverse direction the people of Dan are defeated they've been pressed, they've been pushed out and they're living in the hills somewhere and verse 36 is a devastating kind of final conclusion to it all because you're expecting after the whole conquest that what usually happens in the Bible is going to happen that the author is going to give us all of the borders of the land of Israel of the people of Israel. But what does he give us instead? The border of the Amorites. No, this conquest seems successful, but it's incomplete. What's happened here? Friends, this is not just a failed military expedition. No, this is the result of repeated compromise and half-hearted obedience Because you see, you must read all of this in the context of God's command to his people, in his word. You have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord gives them over to you and you defeat them, Then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. What did we see at the city of Luz? They made a covenant with that man. You shall make no covenant with them. Show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them, you shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. It's repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 20. In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breeds, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. That's repeated in the book of Numbers. It's there in the book of Exodus. And you know, sometimes as 21st century Christians and modern readers, we get kind of queasy with passages like that, don't we? How could God command complete destruction of these people? Is this some kind of genocide? And I want to quickly answer that question because a lot of Christians struggle with it and then you meet some kind of atheist who challenges you on it and then you struggle to answer and you get yourself into a pickle. This is not a genocide. First of all, I want to highlight God's grace to these people. Because in Genesis chapter 15, when God promises Abraham the land that these people dwell in, He says it's going to be several generations and many years, over 400 years before I bring you into this land, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God did not bring judgment upon them until their sins had been fully filled up. And these people didn't repent. They had heard of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction that God brought against those towns for their wickedness. They had heard of Israel coming out of Egypt and how Israel's God was the one true God. They had seen nations like Jericho, cities like Jericho being torn to the ground under God's justice. And they still didn't listen to that witness. They persisted in their wickedness. God was gracious in waiting with them and being patient. Second, I want to highlight God's protection God's protection of his people and his purposes, his plans. God wanted to protect his people from the evil practices of these nations. He wanted to form in the people of Israel a nation that would display to the world what it means to know the living God. And if you look at the practices of these nations, oh my goodness, they were horrendous. You think our world is getting evil today, go back and read a chapter like Leviticus 18 and consider there the many perversions that was practiced in these cultures. They considered incest something to be gloried in. Their very worship was pornographic. Their temples were filled with child prostitutes. They practiced child sacrifice, burning their own children to false and evil gods. And God was protecting his people from being corrupted by those religious practices. God showed them grace. God was going to protect his people. And ultimately, these wars are an act of God's justice. No, this is not genocidal, nor in, even is it economical that Israel was taking over these lands for you know, prosperity in themselves. No, this is not genocide, this is judgment. God is a divine judge. He is the God of life and death and He has the claim over every human life. He has the right to judge and the ability to judge. And this war was not Israel's war against these people. This was God's war. This was God's judgment upon them for their wicked sins. And the the miracle really when we think about God's judgment in the Bible and His justice is not that He puts entire nations of people to death. The real thing that should cause you to wonder and marvel is that God leaves any human beings alive for our wickedness. And this act of justice really points forward to the final judgment when God will one day eternally punish all evildoers for our wicked deeds. And you've got to ask, would it have mattered if they had lived on to an old age, a ripe old age, and then gone to hell. Now this was God's justice and judgment. And I want to be clear, because sometimes we can get confused as we read these passages. There is no such divinely appointed grant of land for any nation on earth today. Nor do passages like this grant support for any nation to wage war in God's name. All right? There's a particular context to these passages and you can't just bring them over to today and say this and that. Israel, the nation, was in covenant with God at this time. They were supposed to be the agents of God's justice to these Canaanites. They were to purify the land and establish a new nation that would show the light of God's glory to those around them. But they don't obey those commands. Instead, they compromise. They compromise. They choose their own comfort and convenience. They make lame excuses. They have iron chariots. Did they lack the strength to do this? Absolutely not. They had the strength. They had lack of faith in God's strength. I mean, they were strong enough to put these people to force labor. That's what they did. They chose something very convenient. Oh, let's make them our slaves. They didn't do what God said. Israel says oh, we could not drive them out. God says, no, the problem was you would not drive them out. Isn't that the case with us? Sometimes we say, oh, I can't, when the reality is you won't. Remarked by half-hearted commitment, incomplete obedience, compromising tolerance. And think about our principle. These are examples for us so that we might not desire evil. Because aren't we so prone to the same dangers, friends? Choosing to do what we think is smart, doing what we want, instead of doing what God has commanded, especially when His commandments are difficult for us. We choose compromises for our own convenience rather than committed obedience to God's commands. Ultimately, it leads to disaster like the end of the book of Judges where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. No, there there is this progression that keeps taking place that you see in Judges that takes place in many Christian lives. It begins with compromise. You compromise because you want what's convenient. And then when you find what's convenient, you become content in that convenience. And that contentment and convenience then leads to you being compromised. And you go from being compromised to becoming corrupted. And from corruption, it leads to chaos and condemnation. This is so common in churches, isn't it? Churches make the compromise from pursuing obedience to the Great Commission to becoming a hub for consumeristic convenience. Christians function as consumers, just like going to the mall. I want to get what I want. Churches go from being an embassy of the kingdom of heaven to being an entertainment hub for Christians to be comfortable churches get so diluted that you can't tell the difference between the church and the world anymore people ask us i mean why do we place such an emphasis on church membership why do you have to go through such a process why do we have to sit down with an elder and get to know you and know if you really know the lord why all of that why can't we just belong before we believe well friends that approach leads to corruption corruption of the people of God and their purity. Why do we practice church discipline? Why do we have to be so harsh? Why do we have to do these difficult things and put someone out of the church? Well, Because we're supposed to guard the purity of God's people, of God's flock. And don't think it just starts with churches. It extends to personal lives, doesn't it? I mean, things like might look good on the outside. Reading this narrative without thinking about the context, you might think, oh, they were successful. It went well for them on the outside. Things look fine. And it might be the case with your life. Things look fine. You look successful on the outside. Things look good. You have a great testimony. Maybe you've had some great initial victories in your life. But if you're not living in wholehearted obedience to Christ today, dear friend, you are not fine. How many of us, how many of us have come into the realm of God's promise, have experienced what we think is a saving deliverance by Christ have come into the church and yet the Canaanite of pornography and sexual sin still lives with you. Speaking to the men, I want to ask how many of you have claimed that Christ is working in your life and things look good on the outside yet the Canaanite of failure to lead your families in the ways and words of, word of God continues in you? And you're harsh to your wife. And ignore your children. How many of us have come into the promised land and we still have with us the Jebusite of gossip and backbiting and slander? Or the Hivite of envy and insecurity and discontent? How many of us have failed to drive out the parasite of self centered living, of worldly ambition, worldly success, worldly friendships that draw you towards sin rather than drawing you towards Christ? Or the Hittite of apathy and disinterest towards the church, living in isolation, doing your own thing? How many of us still live with the Amorite of heart, half hearted devotion? And just a casual drifting through life. You might say, you know, oh, pastor, I got it under control. You know, it's not that bad. And that's what these Israelites would have probably said. Oh, we put them under our control. We, We have it under control. We've subjected them to forced labor. In fact, now they're serving us rather than creating trouble for us. Friends, it is never pleasing to God. It is never pleasing to God if all that we're doing, as one pastor said, is being careful in disobedience many of us are walking in such a way that we think we're walking carefully but actually we're walking carefully in being disobedient half-hearted obedience is disobedience and as the Puritan John Owen used to say be killing sin or it will be killing you and you cannot kill any sin in your life unless you are committed to driving out all sin from your life. Think of their progression, right? The Canaanites lived among them. But then after that, they lived among the Canaanites. And then the Canaanites began to defeat them. Friends, if we continue allowing sin a place in our lives, it won't be long before we're living with sin, and sin makes its home in us, And small sins become big sins and we live in a worldly way until eventually you are indistinguishable from the world. That's what happened to Israel in the book of Judges. That's what we'll see throughout this book. The move from compromise to convenience to becoming compromised to becoming utterly corrupt, condemned and in chaos. What does God have to say about it? That's our third and final movement today. And we reach to our fourth town that begins with B. We saw a good beginning. We saw repeated compromises. And now we see a tragic ending. A tragic ending. We went to Bezek. We stopped at Bukhra. We went to Bethel. Now we come to Bochim. Chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. The half hearted people are met by their merciful, whole hearted covenant God. And it's interesting, it says the angel of the Lord, this is a representative messenger who speaks on behalf of God. He is identified with God. It's God in angelic form. He goes up from Gilgal to Bochim. Why is Gilgal significant? Well, if you go back to the book of Joshua again, Joshua chapter 5, Joshua meets this angel of the Lord at a place called Gilgal. And he says, I am the commander of the Lord's armies. I am with you. The Lord is reminding these people of where they started and how far they have failed and fallen. The Lord says, he reminds them who he is. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He is a faithful God who has kept all his promises. He delivered his people and he has entered covenant with them and he will keep his promises. But then he reminds them not just of his covenant, but of his commands. And I said, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Where else in the Bible do we see God's people not obey his voice? And then God asks them, what is this you have done? The answer is Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve fail to hear and obey God's voice. And God says to them in chapter 3, what is this you have done? This is a new fall. Israel has experienced the story of the fall all over again. This is Genesis 3 in replay. And God's response is that God gives them over to their sin. God gives them over to their sin. He says, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Just like the earth brought forth thorns in Genesis 3, now these Canaanites living in the land shall be thorns to the people of Israel, and their gods shall become traps. It's, It's an amazing, again, an amazing twist here. Because you think about it, Israel was looking at the wretched false gods of Canaan, and thinking, oh, these gods promise prosperity, and they promise fertility, and they promise success, and oh, maybe we worship those gods, and we'll get some of those things, and God says, actually, you know, you think those gods are giving you freedom, but they're actually making you trapped, and you will be trapped, just like a fly in a spider's web, as one person said. What a contrast between the beginning and the end the, the, the book began, chapter 1, verse 1, this introduction began with the people seeking after the Lord. Here you have the Lord seeking out His people. At the beginning, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. I've delivered them into your hand. Here God says, I've delivered you over to them. And how do they respond? They respond with weeping. They weep. That's why this place is called Bokim. It means weeping. They respond with weeping and then they offer a sacrifice, verse 5. They lifted up their voices and wept, verse 4. Friends, if we marginalize God's word, if we compromise on God's commands, if we seek comfort and convenience over our commission, if we do what we want rather than to submit to God's authority, be sure of it, that path leads down to sorrow and weeping. And one way here, that's kind of good. It's good that they wept. It's good when we weep. Oh, would that we would have more tears over sin in the church. Would that we say, here I fall, my Savior, I deserve thy place, and that we would weep over our sin more. But our tears would not be enough. No, their tear ducts were affected, but their hearts were not, as the rest of the book shows us. They offered a sacrifice, but that sacrifice was not enough. No, the blood of whatever animal they offered could never wash away their sin. They went away from Bokim, the place of weeping, with tears streaming down their faces, but their hearts were unchanged. And so often it is the case with us, oh, how many times I've met people who weep and who cry, and maybe that's you, we weep over our sin, but we leave unchanged because weeping won't change us. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All these for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And so with the people of Israel, we cry out and we ask the question, who will go up for us? Who will go up for us? Who will make atonement for our sin? Who will conquer for us? And the answer comes ringing out from scripture, Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Son of God, who came down from heaven, born in the Lion of Judah, and he went up to the cross, and he offered there the perfect sacrifice to wash away our sin, to wipe away our tears, and he went up from the grave And he won the victory that forever vanquished the enemies of God. And he stands and he calls us today to come to him in repentance and in mourning and in weeping and in faith. Promising to wipe every tear from our eyes and to wipe away the sins from our hearts. Friends, we have a battle before us. But Jesus has won that battle. We have a great commission that God has called us to. And Jesus promises, I am with you. We have a command to strive for holiness, but the holiness that God requires, He provides for us in Christ. What will happen next? We come back to the question at the beginning. How do we enter into the full fulfillment of God's promises? And the answer is, by wholehearted obedience to God's word and living under the rule of Christ. See, just like the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, one day the Son of God will come down from heaven to earth and He will evaluate us. What will He find on that day? If you don't know Him, come to Him in weeping today. Put your faith in Him. And may He find us all in wholehearted obedience living under his lordship. Let's make no compromises now so that we won't be weeping then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so glorious a Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us live in wholehearted obedience to our King, our Savior, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.